Many of my dad's chosen and biological family are politically conservative. Growing up, my uncle was the pastor of the Indiana Militia, which is one of those organizations that encourages its members to hoard guns and not pay taxes. My aunt and uncle lived, worshipped, homeschooled, and socialized with militia folks. My guess is these days we describe them as a white nationalist group. On that horrifying day in January when people tried to stage a coup in D.C., I wondered if my cousins were there. I've actually looked through the FBI's insurrection photos a couple times to see if I recognize any of them. One of those cousins is Stephen. He's a pastor like his dad, and we used to be Facebook friends. It was an easy way to share photos and news, and you know, he's family. But he is a different kind of clergy than I am. In fact, I think he probably doesn't think that I'm clergy at all. The last time we interacted online, he post a, posted a photo of a billboard that said, Cain killed Abel with a rock. It's a heart problem, not a gun problem. Jeremiah 17:9. Now, Smith and Wesson wasn't around 600 years before the Common Era, so I wondered what it was that Jeremiah had to say about guns. Jeremiah 17:9 is, the heart is devious above all else. It is perverse. Who can understand it? I don't know what that scripture has to do with guns. But in a futile act, I challenged Stephen in the comments on Facebook. If you have ever done this, you know, like I do, and like I did at that time, that comments sections are dark caves where discourse is dragged down by the trolls of our worst nature where no heart is ever turned. And still, I went tromping in there like a woman on a mission, wearing my hip waders of self-righteousness. <laughs> and even as I kept telling myself to disengage, I'd load yet another sanctimonious arrow and shoot from my bunker. I don't remember how it ended, except that I likely fired off one last one before I unfriended him. In fact, I unfriended a lot of the family on my dad's side. I decided that if I was going to choose to spend my time on a platform, it wasn't worth being friends with people who raised my blood pressure all the time. At some point, I moved from agree to disagree to, ugh, not this again, to just unfriending. I now have a carefully cultivated group of friends. I can post and write about things that my family consider far left, generally without worrying about getting into a word brawl. The people who deeply disagree with me aren't there anymore. Honestly, I don't miss them. I think lots of unkind things when I read their posts, and I know from experience that they think the same of mine. Unfriending Stephen was long coming. Stephen and I didn't grow up together, and generally, I have spent very little time with my dad's family. So before social media, what we had shared, what we had to share was the vague fondness of familiarity. The recognition that we shared people in mutual love. I loved my dad, who loved his sister, 
who was Stephen's mom. But Facebook gave us the regular opportunity to see each other. And really, we all know this, right? That seeing each other on Facebook is really not real, but tiny glimpses of each other's lives, maybe photos of weekends away and tagged memories of our parents when they were young. And of course, all those political stories and memes springboards for us to think and say awful things about and to each other. Our story of polarization is an almost cliche microcosm of the social media moment we're in. A few years ago, my last church got a grant to put on dinner parties. We recruited people of opposite political persuasions, and our hope was that over a meal, we could find commonality. And in many ways, it worked. We had lengthy conversations about guns at two of the dinners, and people were able to speak and listen without calling each other names. I doubt anyone left our dinners having changed their minds, but there was some connection with people who voted differently, and that's what we were aiming for. And it meant that even on subjects where there was diversity of opinion, everyone had to listen to another viewpoint. Our hypothesis was confirmed. When people are face-to-face, -face, most of the time we find our way to a middle meeting point for the sake of society. We are social animals, and in person, most of us strive for cohesion in some way. This is why even when we disagree, we sometimes try to persuade each other. We want to be on the same team. And when that doesn't work, we can pivot to a subject that is easier instead of hammering on the one we don't agree on. I know this isn't universal, and I know that this theory is challenged at many Thanksgiving tables across the country. But our groups of mostly strangers were willing to try to stand for what they believed in without knocking out those who disagreed. These discussions were not a series of rehearsed arguments, but dialogue between people in broken sentences and incorrect syntax. It was the imperfect way that conversation is. But online, the natural change of subject isn't natural at all. In fact, it is strange when someone gets in on a post and makes unrelated comments. You know, the how are the kids question on a political post. The redirection that we might use for a tense in-person conversation is a faux pas on the internet. So online space can be volatile where people can easily call each other names and break off communication. I think that given the chance, Jesus might have dragged Stephen and I to ordained clergy by the ears and given us a talking to all those years ago. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love, Jesus said. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. But Jesus wasn't talking about familial at attachment. He was talking about holy, divine love. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And Jesus doesn't just mean my carefully curated Facebook friends, nor does he mean the people I'd call up for a beer on a Thursday night. Friend is a word that is defined by culture, and in this context, Jesus means something a little different than what we might. New Testament scholar Gail R. O'Day explains that for Aristotle, 
400 years before Jesus, to be a good friend was to be a good citizen. It was about equals contributing to the greater good. This was how many philosophical schools understood it. The New Testament writers built on this, on the Hellenistic understanding of friendship. So when Jesus talks about laying down his life for his friends, he is talking about doing so for the greater good and not simply for the people immediately around him. Friendship in John is the enactment of the love of God that is incarnate in Jesus and that Jesus boldly makes available to the world, she writes. Jesus tells the disciples, I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. Even in our current cultural context, this understanding of friendship still tracks. Jesus is leveling the power structure. Servants are becoming friends. And friendship is about good citizenship. Jesus is making us responsible to and for each other. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Notice that he tells us to love as Jesus loved, not the sometimes lukewarm fondness between cousins, but rather the deep, intense, true love that Jesus offered to all those he met on the journey. Love as Jesus did so that we can abide in God's love and make our joy complete. In the years since that fiery exchange with Stephen, I have unfriended a lot of my dad's family. I think it mostly went unnoticed until my dad died. And suddenly I needed to get in touch with family that I had ghosted so many years ago. Not just to tell them that my dad passed, but because I longed to grieve with people who also loved my dad. I unfriended many of these folks for bigoted and hateful posts. And I want to say that Jesus would have too. That is the right thing, that it was the right thing to do, to turn my back on hate and hardness of heart. But Jesus didn't turn his back on the hateful. In fact, Jesus loved all the people. He saw them for who they were. He challenged them in love and spoke the truth, but never from a place of hate, which is actually good news because sometimes I look at my own behavior and that of my woke friends and see the hateful things that we do too. I was terrified in January and heartsick that people were trying to overthrow the government. I was angry in the days after. I wanted those people to pay with their freedom. I still want them held to accountability. But I'm trying to make room in my heart to understand that they did what they thought was right and necessary, and that there is a story there that I have an obligation to find, to be a good citizen, a friend. Hatred is not closing the gap. Hatred is not making us one again. I'm not going to finish up here and go friend Stephen on Facebook. I don't think that was good for either of us. But I do hear the Holy Spirit calling me and you to love as Jesus did. And he showed us how to do it. 
If we want to end bitter divisions, the place to start is from the center, from the heart. By laying down our weapons of self-righteousness and stepping out of the bunkers of carefully crafted social media friend groups, whether it is through intentional dinners with strangers or hard conversations with cousins. We must listen to each other. Hating the haters makes us haters too. It means abiding in our convictions and being willing to listen and hope and love as Jesus did. For no one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends, he said. We have time to refill the gaps and heal our brokenness. It isn't complicated, but it is the hardest thing we do as Christians to try to love as Jesus did. May we abide, live, languish, rest in God's love and get to work so that our joy may be complete.